so question. How do you talk to friends, family, colleagues, and acquaintances about things that matter, hard things, in a way that leads to each person being seen, heard, acknowledged, and treated with dignity? How do you get a resolution and sidestep the hurt, the wounding, the rage, the reactivity? How do you have conversations in work and life that lead to genuine understanding and change and leave you feeling respected and at peace even when you still disagree. Well, that's where we're going in today's conversation with my guests, Alex Jamison and Bob Gower, partners in business and life and co-authors of Radical Alignment, How to Have Game-Changing Conversations That Will Transform Your Business and Life. Alex is a best-selling author of five books, co-creator and co-star of the Oscar-nominated documentary, Supersize Me. She's a seriously highly sought-after success mentor, a motivational guide, for thousands and has pretty much made it her mission to empower women to create epic lives. Bob is a New York-based consultant, writer, speaker. He contributes to Inc. Magazine, has lectured at Columbia, NYU, the Berlin School, worked with leaders at companies like Chanel, Ericsson, Ford, GE, and all the way to nonprofits like the New York Public Radio, Studio Museum, and Wikimedia Foundation. And they have spent years deconstructing how to have healthy positive conversations. We need these insights right now, (laughs) like never before. Really excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So 
I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. I feel like in the last year, you know, I've done a lot of dietary experiments in my life and I've always had like, you know, trying to gain muscle or lose fat or heal my gut. And I've been, I've been gluten-free, I've been keto, I, you know, I, I've gone through all the, and now I, I, I'm not really anything anymore, but I'm very happy with myself and I'm very happy with my diet. And I don't know that I would have gotten here without having gone through all of those very definitive three-step processes and all the things that I learned about myself and learned about my my body along the way, because I'm like, oh yeah, sort of, I understand keto. And now I understand kind of why it doesn't work for me. I understand, you know, I understand all of these little pieces. And so part of the journey maybe is trying things that feel definitive for a little while, try them on. You know, it's like the, there's the form shuhari, right? Like you, you crawl, walk, run in martial arts, right? You work the kata over and over again, like these, these regular forms. So you can eventually break free of the forms, just like jazz musicians play scales over and over again so they can be fully free and, and break mm -hmm. free from the form. And I think maybe a lot of life is like that. So there yeah. is value in creating these forms. Yeah. I mean, we just wrote a whole book on a four-step process. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Okay. But, but let, let's talk about that actually. Um, because what was popping into my head also is I'm much more comfortable saying, here's a framework for discernment that I found to be really useful in a lot of scenarios that can guide behavior um, for you to play with rather than like, this is the one way to do this one thing. And I feel that's more what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 And, and it's like dating. You have to date a lot of different people <laughs> to find your person. But then once you find your person, you both change and become different people along the way too. And it's the same with diet or frameworks, like you have to try a lot of them out and then eventually you find your version of it or you dance back and forth between different things that work at different times for you. Yeah. There's a difference between dogma and approach or patterns or frameworks. Yeah, I think one of the things, like writing the book for us, you know, it's a framework that we've been using, you know, for close to a decade now. Like we didn't write about it for the longest time because it just felt so simple. You know, it just was like, oh, it's just too simple and too obvious. And so why would you bother writing about something that's so simple and so obvious? And it wasn't until we would be talking to people who are going through something and we would offer it to them and they'd be like, wow, that's amazing. And it was hard for us. I think it was hard for me to see that something so simple and so obvious actually could be valuable to other people. But in many ways, that's all that's valuable, right? Like me talking to you about what's simple and obvious for you. Like I know like you're such an amazing marketer, an amazing audience builder and and even like an audio technician, like I've talked to you about so many different things over the years. And I have the sense sometimes that the things you're telling me seem very simple and obvious to you. And yet to me, they're kind of, they're just not in my realm. And they, and they, and they really, they really have revolutionized the way I've thought about different things. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting also the, um, as we are having this conversation, I'm working on my next book about the sparkotypes and, uh, was literally just working on the chapter about advisors, um, where the impulse is, to advise, to mentor, to guide. And one of the things that I learned along the way is that sort of an entry-level advisor in the early years, it's all about telling people what to do. 
you know, once you graduate into sort of ninja level advisors, you just shut up. <laughs> it's, it's all about the powers of awareness and observation and appropriate questions and prompts and frameworks. Yeah. And you don't give any answers anymore. Oh man. And so it's fascinating to kind of see the evolution of, you know, like of all of that. And by the way, that wasn't just a, uh, an ad for, <laughs> for the book, but there's way more in there coming up. You know, that, that makes me think of my dad, actually. You know, he was a high school principal for 25 years. I think he is that ninja level advisor. Like he doesn't tell any of, there's four siblings. He has four kids. He doesn't tell any of us what to do or how to think or how to be. He only asks questions. So he would be so perfect for this chapter. But it's honestly, as a child, I'm like, dude, just tell me what you know. <laughs> just, just tell me your wisdom. Just give me the stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We all crave certainty. Yeah. We just want the answers. But, you know, along with that comes dependence, which at the end is a disservice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about... Uh, Dolly Parton, she says that she never offers advice to people who are coming into the music industry. She just sort of says, hey, this was my experience and you might learn from it or you might not. And that was kind of a big light bulb that went off for me. And then recently I've kind of closed down sort of an aspect of my business, which was much more about strategy. And actually the last client I had really expressed some dissatisfaction at the end because they were like, we really thought you were going to tell us what to do. You know, like we really thought you were, you were going to analyze the market for us. And I have no idea how they thought that because nothing in my contract said that that was what I was going to do or the team that I had was going to do. We did say that we had experience in their vertical. And so we could bring that to the conversation. We could have opinions, but that the conversation was really theirs. And what we were there to do was to lead them through. And then she also said, the client also said at the end, and I think we had exactly the conversation we really need to have, but I can't help but being disappointed. And I was like, okay, like... It was a great experience on the one hand, because I felt like, okay, we got them where they needed to have, because it was really about them having, they really had like a very fundamental, difficult conversation they needed to have that they just weren't having. And frankly, market analysis was going to lead them away from that conversation rather than towards it. You mm -hmm. know, it was going to allow them to kind of pretend that they were aligned without actually having the deep conversation about power and authority and ownership and where cash was going in this organization, which was all messed up and all out of alignment. Yeah. They needed to know who are we as a team? Like, mm -hmm. how are we working together? Not what are we going to do out there? Yeah. Like that'll happen eventually, but the team conversation had to happen first. Yeah, it was almost all about intention, really. Like one person's intention was to make sure cash flowed in one direction. Another person's intention was to disrupt the market, who, by the way, had been hired by the first person, you know, like but they're, but they just weren't, you know, like, so they all had like different and they just kind of kept bumping into each other. They would make plans and then not do them. Hmm. And it was because they're, they were, they were each thought the company was, had a different purpose than, than, than the other one thought. Yeah. So I guess this kind of gets us into our topic uh, of conversation also, which is conversations, often hard conversations, but really, really necessary conversations. Like you guys shared, you know, you've sort of developed the framework that you've been using with each other for the last decade or so, as well as you both have your own independent businesses with clients, colleagues. We certainly are in a moment now, culture-wise, where people are finding it harder to have any conversation, let alone hard conversations, even people that we you know care about uh, deeply. Sometimes it's family. And I'm curious, actually, how you, would you distinguish between 
conversation and argument. We were just talking about this. Or were we arguing about it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we talk about discourse and debate kind of as the distinction that we've been making recently. And debate is really, you know, you're, you're, you're there to kind of prove the other person wrong. You know, it's, the, it's very common in social media. It's one of the reasons I'm not really on social media now is because I found myself participating in debate with people that I was never going to convince. And it was sort of inconsequential, even if I did convince them, like I didn't even know them very well. So why was I, you know, spending time like trying to convince them of things, but really I was trying to just prove them wrong. I wasn't trying to learn anything. I wasn't there to, to be changed by it. And I think when it comes to discourse, or maybe it's just sort of, you know, positive argument or good argument you come in willing to learn because you understand that you don't have the full picture of what's of the topic. Like that we're all, they're all viewing the world through like a really, like a pinhole of, of, of perception. And that if we're going to really understand something that we need to, that we need other people, you know, we need, you know, people who to, to kind of share in that thinking with us. Am I capturing the spirit of our conversation? Well, yeah. I, yeah. And, and we were also talking about, you know, what makes a conversation or what makes communication hard what makes it tough? And for for us, we came down to kind of two main things, which is, it, it, you know, is it highly emotional? Like, are you already in, you know, feeling a lot? Some people will say triggered, but I feel like that, that doesn't give the respect that we deserve as humans, that we are emotional, physical creatures. And besides being emotional, like, is it a high stakes topic? Do you feel like something really fundamentally important is on the line? Like, is somebody going to lose something? Is somebody going to win something? So emotions and high stakes, those felt like the two really important parts of what makes a conversation tough. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, and when you weave that into sort of like the distinction between discourse and debate, I think you can have... Those two things, right, emotion and high stakes can be present, whether it's a debate and you're just trying to prove the other person wrong or whether it's a discourse and you really want to have an open conversation and see if there's a possibility of resolution. And yet it can get really emotional and the stakes are high. What pops into my mind is either there will be some people listening to this or there will some people listening to this who know people who love to debate it's their sport yeah um and this is so you get into a scenario where it's emotional but one person this is their sport they are an athlete <laughs> and all they want to do is provoke emotion and create that in the name of winning and but on their side they are completely emotionally detached it's just fun it's it is a hundred percent sport i i have actually um a friend of mine, you know, who uh, is in the practice of law, who is a litigator, very successful, loves, loves, loves what they do. And, and part of it is because they have found a professional outlet for this thing where there's no, there's no emotional investment, yet part of their, their love is to provoke emotion on the other side, especially, you know, when the stakes are really, really, really high in the name of winning. And I wonder what, what you do when you find yourself interacting with someone where you're you're in it from a deeply emotionally involved state and the other person it really is just sport can we talk about in good faith yeah sure yeah honestly i didn't join the debate team for a reason 
because I don't enjoy that kind of sport. I I do get very emotional or it feels very important, like important conversations feel deeply important to me. And so to trigger someone purposefully doesn't feel like fun to me. So we, you know, we've gotten really into this idea of, are we both in this conversation in good faith? Are we coming together for a clear outcome that serves both of us? You know, are we really willing to listen to each other, be changed maybe even by each other? Like, are you that open? Are you willing to really be present? So I had an experience a few months ago where it was a very emotional topic with an old friend. And I realized, oh, she's not coming to this in good faith. And I asked for a timeout. And that was really appropriate to ask for it. Like, hold on, let's, let's really examine how we're communicating here. And that required a pause. Yeah, I was thinking about, it's sort of like the relationship to truth. And as you were, as you're both talking, one, I've, I've sort of stepped out of relationships because with people that you're describing, Jonathan, you know, like who just want to argue. And I think there's maybe two different reasons. One, as I know people who are just contrarian and really they just kind of enjoy the game and they enjoy the case. They, they sort of just take pleasure in things getting kind of stirred up, uh, which I don't. Um, and And I think there's another side, which is sort of when you look at our legal system, the idea is, is that each side is going to you know, beat the hell out of each other side. And then one side is going to win and be happy. And one side is going to lose and suffer. And that's how we find the truth of the matter. That's how justice is served. And that's how, I mean, that seems to be sort of the underlying, the, you know, the, in, in, the, in litigation, that's like the underlying philosophy. But I think what we're talking about, and I think the kinds of relations, the kinds of conversations that I prefer, maybe we may come at it from very, very different angles and have very strong, different opinions and very strong, different mindsets and ideologies. But the goal is to have a relationship with the person on the other side and to actually do something with them to reach some kind of sense of alignment, whether or not we disagree, you know, it could be that we're going to disagree and commit, you know, because we work with a lot of business teams that, you know, if one person loses and feels really bad, they can sabotage the project in, in a variety of very subtle ways, you know, which we've seen, I've seen over and over again. They can quit, which then you have to bring somebody else back in. And also they may be bringing some really vital perspective that if we just shut that person down, shut that person up, keep that person from contributing, we then miss out on. We just don't, we don't get their brain. We don't get their being working on the problem anymore. So I think when I think about difficult conversations of the kind that I care about, because there's so many different kinds of conversations I would classify as difficult, but the ones that I want to engage in are the ones that have a purpose to them. Like Alex and I may argue about, you know, you know, everything from personal to professional to, you know, kind of direction of the business to direction of the family to where we're, you know, but we're committed to each other, you know, like we're going to be together. So we have to figure this, this thing out and we have to come to some kind of agreement. And so it's okay to lose, you know, in quotation marks from time to time, you know, I don't have to get everything I, everything I want because what I want ultimately is for the relationship to be vital and healthy and for the relationship to move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think having that meta lens is something that sometimes is not the easiest thing to access, to zoom the lens out and say like, what's really going on here? And at the end of the day, who who had the quote, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? Um, 
I, and it's probably not the exact quote, but it's, it's, yeah, I think that's part of the idea also. And I wonder, you know, in the context of meeting up with somebody who just loves to argue or debate for the sport of it, and there's no malice there also, it's just their fun. Whether one of the things, if you're not that person, you know, if you want to have hard conversations for the purpose of true resolution, whether being able to identify whether the person on the other side of the conversation as quickly as possible is in it for using your language debate or discourse becomes a pretty mission critical skill. Yeah, that sometimes you don't figure out until you're in the conversation too. You know, I recently, actually, I, I won't name the person, but you know, somebody who I've known for years and who I've tried at different times to do professional, we just, you know, we, we share, you know, a love of each other. We share a love of certain ideas. And then after a while, I realized that they liked to destabilize everything that we were doing on a very regular basis, like that, that was kind of their fun. And I was like, that's, you know, and they're very successful. Like, it's like they create things, but I just realized, like, I don't think we are going to create anything either. I'm not going to have, we might create something great, but I'm not going to have fun doing it. And that's important to me, or we're just never going to create anything together because I keep trying to create form and you keep trying to create discord or chaos. Yeah. We've also got these basic ground rules that we discovered we were using with each other that we have found so important in those conversations out there in the world. And we, we shorthand is setting the stage, but it's like, when are we going to talk and what are we talking about? And in what state are we showing up to the conversation? And to what end are we talking? Like yeah. why? Like why is it important to both of us to have this conversation? And most people aren't used to having that level of clarity before you get into a topic. Like, hey, can we talk about this topic on Saturday when we've both eaten, when we've got some quiet, you know, we're both sober and fed and awake <laughs> and we're going to talk about X. Like that level of specificity is um, really unusual, but it's been a huge... <laughs> huge calming sedative to my nervous system when mean, it comes to tough topics. You mean rather than arguing about something in the, in the middle of the night yeah. and in a, in a desperate way to resolve it before we go to sleep? Yeah. You, you not that? after, not <laughs> after we share a bottle of wine, not right before bed, <laughs> never works. But it's really important right now. It's so important right okay, now. Okay. But that, that also brings up one of the classic instructions for you and loved one, which is never go to bed angry. We do not believe in that rule. Yeah. We do not. I used to believe that. I really did. Yeah. And then I realized in our relationship, actually, it was like, oh, this, why would I even try to talk to you at midnight? Like, I am not my best self. I am not. We're okay with going to bed angry. Yeah. Yeah. But because I think there's another really important relationship skill, which has taken me a long time to learn, and that's self-soothing. Because I think often when I was in argument, I was seeking solace through my partner in some way. I was saying like, you you know, like when you agree with me, I will feel okay. Or when we reach agreement, maybe even to be a little more generous, but really it's no, it's more like when you see things my way, you know, like that's the, that's the mindset I'm in, then I will be okay. But learning how to, to kind of lie in bed and be okay with things feeling a little bit disruptive, a little bit unsure, a little bit and soothe myself and be like, okay, I'm going to be, a, it's actually a, to me, it's a, it's, it's something I've learned rather late in life. I, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, but it's, it's, a, I think an important adulting skill. 
right? I think it really only took a couple of time, a couple of instances for us to realize, oh, if we just go to bed, tomorrow there won't really be a problem. Like whatever was up for us pretty much wasn't a problem. We were just tired and cranky. <laughs> now, all right, maybe we have a, a simple clarifying conversation. Yeah. And that happens like two or three times, right? You let the conversation go. You wake up in the morning. You're like, what was I so upset about? You know, like that, that seems so important last night. But now that I'm having breakfast, just, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I love you. I love you we're too. Fine. Yeah, we're fine. <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny you say that because I I noticed that about myself also, and I and I attribute I think part of it to a longstanding uh, meditation practice, is that th there are times where I'm just not fun. <laughs> there are times where you know I've, I'm just I'm I can tell I have a short fuse. I'm not you know like interactive. I'm not kind. I may not like you know, I don't create space for people that I absolutely love, and you know conversations aren't what I want. And I've gotten to a point where, you know, I will not always, but most often notice I'm like, oh, I'm being an idiot. Huh? What's actually going on here? I'm like, is it the topic? No, I don't really care about it that much. Like, is it the person? No, they're being cool. I'm like, oh, it's me. <laughs> I haven't slept well for three days or I'm really stressed because I'm under deadline. Yeah. And this is being internally generated. It's not an it's not an interrelational thing. It's an internal relational thing. This is actually one of the points about tough conversations right now in this climate that keeps coming up for me. And I think social media is an amplifier of this problem. It's so hard for us as humans to admit when we're wrong. It's so hard for many, many reasons. But I think social media makes it hard because you're going to get slammed even if your apology or change of mind is is very honest and real. Like you feel like you can't win. So a lot of people just double down on whatever their initial assumption or opinion was. Yeah, we're, we're in a time. <laughs> and, and also, I, you know, I... I think social media is interesting in that I think about Robert Cialdini's um, sort of seminal work on influence and what, and he talked about this thing called the consistency principle where, you know, we feel compelled as human beings to act and say things that are consistent with our prior actions and things that we've said. So if we make a little statement, you know, if it's in passing in conversation, then it's out there in the ether and we can pretty quickly change our mind and have conversation, but we don't even like to do that. But if we make a, a graphic or a video or something and then we put it on the socials and then there's all people who are like, then it's almost like, I feel like that makes you feel like you're more dug in and that unconscious sort of like um, bias towards consistency makes us want to keep saying and doing the same things, even if our thought evolution is different yeah. um, because we want to be seen a certain way. It certainly complicates things. It's almost like consistency of identity or ego, right? Like we want to, we want to be like, oh, I'm still the same person that I was before. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think about this a lot with, um, we were, we actually had a long conversation about ego over dinner last night about, so, about some of these topics and, and how, you know, I've been on your podcast before and talked about my experience of being in a cult for a couple of years and watching the vow, which is about the Nexium cult, which is on HBO. Um, and it, I'm watching that now and it's sort of reminding me and bringing up a lot of stuff. And one of the things 
that I really remember about it was watching my own mind adopt opinions or thoughts or feelings that I now don't identify with at all, right? We're highly influenced by the people we're around often. And that's kind of what, one of the things that cults sort of prey upon. And I highly recommend The Vow. It kind of goes into this in some, some detail. And, and one of the filmmakers talks about this experience a lot. And so it was har it's hard to leave these groups, even when there's a part of you that sees, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Wait, this is kind of, there's, there's some BS going on here. And maybe I would be happier doing something else. One, you have a community of people around you who are kind of supporting you and kind of, kind of keeping you in this, in this thought pattern. But two, it's really, it's your own desire to be consistent. I said this thing and the longer you're in, in some ways, the harder it becomes to turn away. Like I, I now, you know, like I was in only for two years, which, you know, is both a long time and a short time in some ways compared to others. But when I look back on it, like leaving after two years was kind of hard because I would have to admit that that previous two years was something of a mistake and that I have now evolved and I've now, you know, and I'm so glad that I was actually in this group before social media was a thing, because <laughs> I hate to think what are the, you know, I would hate to have those Facebook messages, you know, in an archive somewhere yeah. you know, that yeah. came out of that kind of thinking. Yeah. And at the same time, I think in the moment you're thinking to yourself, well, I would have to admit these two years had been a mistake. And yet reflecting on your conversation about having, you know, tried a dozen different approaches to eating over the last couple of years and that actually not being a mistake because it's given you these data points to drop you into a place where you are now, which is really healthy. And um, I think with a lot of times with the benefit of time, we gain perspective and say, well, it was two years that I probably would have done something different with, but it also informed me in a way that dropped me into a place where I am in some way able to pull some benefit from the experience and bring it forward into my life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, re regret in many ways, this isn't really terribly useful because, you know, whatever it is you've experienced has gotten you to where you are now. Sure. If I had this perspective that I have now, having had that experience, if I had this perspective before I had that experience, I might've made some different decisions. Yes. And by the way, we are not making an argument for everyone to run out and join cults. <laughs> that, <laughs> no. that is not the point of any of this. No. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So, have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing. And I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. 
When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Alex, you you, um, you brought up this idea of setting the stage, which I think is really interesting. So just sort of saying, instead of, you know, like if there's an issue that you know you need to address, instead mm-hmm. of just doing it right then and there, do it in a way where the setting is constructive. You guys also talk about really creating some sort of structure for the conversation itself when it happens, this idea of intentions, concerns, boundaries, dreams. Can you talk to me a bit about that structure? Yeah. Well, you know, even before you go into those four pieces of a conversation, which by the way, most people don't have structured conversations. So to even bring it up or invite somebody into it can feel a little strange the first couple times, but how you invite someone into a conversation can really be so transformative in itself. Like the last thing anybody wants to hear is we need to talk. We need to talk now, right? Nothing good is coming after that sentence. <laughs> and it really is, hey, can we can we talk about X later this weekend? You know, I'd like to talk about this with you at a later date. Or do you have time now to talk about this? Do you have space and capacity for this? That's actually something that my some of my friends and I have agreed to in our text chain. You know, we don't use it as an emotional dumping ground because people are really their lives are full and, and they have stresses and but we ask permission first. Like, hey, does anybody have space for me to to hop on a phone call or can we have a private text about this thing? Like it's really respectful. It like immediately sets the tone. Instead of me invading your space with a topic, will you come into a space together about something? Yeah. And then for the steps themselves, you know, one of the ways we think about it is missing conversations that, you know, usually often when there's conflict and persistent conflict among people, that it's because there's some either information missing, you know, sometimes the missing conversation is 
goodbye. You know, like that this is not, we're, we're just not aligned and we never will be, but more often than not, there's some sort of missing nuance to the conversation or some missing information. So when we talk about intentions, concerns, boundaries, and dreams, what we're really trying to do is get out all of the, let's call it the sort of the high stakes thinking or the high impact. I'm not even quite saying it. It's more like the emotional, like, like the stuff that feels really important to us. So for instance, when we started to write the book together, we had the conversation about we're getting, because we'd never done business together. We'd only been in a, you know, romantic and intimate partnership. And we'd really both had bad experiences in the past, um, combining the two. And we were like, let's, let's not do this. And then when the book became sort of the next thing to do, it sort of came up as like, oh, it seems like this is really the wisest thing to do. We wanted to do it very deliberately. So we sat down and we were talking about our intentions and the intentions were really easy. You know, we want to, you know, write a book because it's, it's good for business and it helps us get our thinking out and it might be fun to create something together. You know, that's, that's really, really simple. But then concerns, you know, that's where we all get crazy, right? Like uh, humans, we just have such a strong negativity bias. I was certainly raised in a household where worry was kind of one of the, one of the predominant activities. Um, like I would say like 50 to 80% of the conversation around the dinner table was worry of some kind. And so worry is where I go very, very quickly. And what was really kind of fun is we just sort of got our worries out. And we both had the same worry, which was that this was going to lead to divorce and which and divorce was going to lead to, you know, dying alone under a bridge, you know, um, maybe living in a van, maybe not living in a van, you know, but like, like some sort of. All my fears end up there, by the way. In a van? Do you, me have, do you have a van? alone dying under a bridge. Okay. That's yeah. where every fear ends. Yeah. And then, but it was just really to make space for that without having, because, it, you know, like it, that, that kind of fear will come up in our brain, in a mind. and. As soon as it comes up, you're like, well, I can't say that because that sounds because that makes me sound like an idiot. But it was really it's really when you create space to say that, to say that to each other, then you can kind of celebrate it and it, you can kind of dissipate it. You know, a friend of ours is a neuroscientist talks about when we speak things and then there's something about our brain hearing them, which actually changes the way changes our cognition in kind of a significant way. It actually soothes that thing that there is something about bringing it out. And so when we talk about intentions, concerns, boundaries and dreams, we're just gathering information. We're not saying, oh, I have this concern and we better do something about it. What I'm saying is, I have this concern. That's all I'm saying. One of the things we've come to see is so important. And anytime we share this, we offer this as such a, we hope it's such a gift well-received that when you share your fears with each other, even if my fear involves you, I'm not like blaming you. I, we're, we're, we agree to not take our fears personally. Like, I'm not saying you're going to do this or that you're fundamentally flawed because I have a fear about you in some way. Like, our brains come up with bizarre fears and worries. And it's not your fault that I have a fear about you or that somehow involves you. And so it really does create this sense of what's called psychological safety. Like, oh, I have a safe place with my partner or with my team where I can share my fears. And then I feel so much calmer because my fears have been witnessed. My brain can now like check that off and I'm still a part of the group. I'm still loved. I'm still accepted. That is so, that is so different from the first 35 years of my life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the notion of safety also, because when I first read those four things, I'm thinking intentions, concerns, boundaries, dreams, 
And immediately my brain just translated that as safety. Like it wasn't even a, a, a conscious thing. I'm just like, oh, so you create safety. Because in my mind, nothing happens without that. <laughs> or nothing valuable happens without that. Plenty of destructive things happen without it. But if something valuable happens without it, I think it's kind of dumb luck and fairly rare. But with it, it's sort of like you created the, the container and the context for really powerful and often really hard things to happen simultaneously that, that have a net positive outcome. Yeah. The, the beauty of this conversation, a structured conversation like this, where you feel safe, is that you're developing empathy for each other. Even with someone where you are diametrically opposed on something that feels emotional and high stakes, you can reconnect and feel like, oh, I understand where you're coming from. I don't have to agree with how you feel or what you think, but I, I see you. I feel you as a person again. And that's what allows us to like maintain relationships, even if we are disagreeing about something. Yeah. And that creates that sense of safety, right? Feeling witnessed, feeling seen, feeling like I can share my authentic self, like what I, what I really feel and what I really think. I was thinking also about the the next piece, which is boundaries. You know, the, the way boundaries, I think, have showed up for the first like 30, 30 or 40 years of my life. It was, I have a boundary and you better respect it. You know, like it was sort of like, it's almost like this petulant child, you know, like I have a boundary, you know, and it was usually only expressed after somebody had violated it or crossed it or shown like they were going to. And I needed to kind of somehow prove that I was like, it was almost like a macho, <laughs> a petulant child macho, you know, stance. Like, I'm going to show you I'm strong by showing you that I have this boundary. And instead, we really try to frame the conversation of, well, what do you need? You know, like, what do you need to feel safe? What do you need to feel at your best? And it becomes an exploration. Mm -hmm. And I think in personal relationships, this is really powerful. But we do this, we do a lot of this work with professional groups too. And it's, it's amazing how often that question has just never been asked. You know, here you are on a, on a team, which is, which is supposed to be high performing. And yet you've never really asked each other, well, what do you need to perform at your best? Like, and, and acknowledging that different people need different things to perform at their best and different people are different stages of their career, have different temperaments, come from different backgrounds, have different goals. So everybody, you know, some people working 14 hours a day may be fine. And then some people like me may have, you know, like four at best, it seems these days now that I'm in my fifties. <laughs> <laughs> and boundaries is such an interesting topic. You say that you had that relationship of being a petulant child. I just didn't have any, I didn't have any boundaries for the first 30 years. I didn't know what they were. I didn't know it was okay to have them. <laughs> and those two questions, what do you need to feel safe? And what do you need to be at your best? are two different ways to help you find kind of different ends of the, the spectrum. And when we ask this of people, we do say, look, you know, you might not get everything you want. It's not like you're ordering off a menu, especially in relationship. You know, we have a child, Jonathan, you have a child, like, you know, that like, you know, rules, rules and boundaries, like there need to be some flexibility in there sometimes and things change. And if I ask someone, what do you need to feel safe? And I don't respect that. Or I have said what I need to feel safe and it's not respected. Then, you know, my, my sense of safety and my ability to be in an honest, empathetic relationship is greatly changed. 
So I can't just tell you you're safe here and then you automatically feel safe. Right, okay. right. <laughs> you, yeah, the individual is the only one who can determine if they feel safe. It's not being told by somebody else that you are safe. This is a safe space. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you, you can't literally yell at somebody and just say, look, you're safe here. Just open <laughs> <Right>. up. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting too, because that question, what do you need to feel safe? I wonder if some people immediately know and they, they love the fact that they've been asked because they've never been able to actually share it. But then I also wonder if so many people have actually never even considered the question and have no idea what they yeah. need to feel safe. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give myself as an example, in many contexts, I feel safe having a conversation about tough topics, you know, in real time on the phone or in person. But for other topics with certain people, I feel safe communicating via the written word. You know, I have written back and forth with family members about certain topics. And that helped me feel safe and led to incredible outcomes. But having to speak the words out loud didn't feel safe to me. That's so interesting. So sometimes even it's it's the mode of communication mm -hmm. that plays a role. Um, so it's really, you really have to expand what you think about then. Yeah. And you know, one of the things we recommend, and this is maybe another setting the scene thing, but a, something that helps me feel safe is we actually time each other. It's the no crosstalk equal speaking time rule is one of the only things that's been studied and shown to create safety. Yeah. And not even create more indicative that it exists. In some ways, we're trying to reverse engineer by using the timer. You know, and, and you may know from like Amy Edmondson's work on on teamwork and you know team psychological safety that and her work was used by Google and all these other people. But essentially, that you can you know a team has psychological safety when everybody is contributing about the same amount. So they could be universally, it could be a very boisterous team or it could be a very quiet team, as long as not one one or two people aren't like dominating the whole thing. And it's not, you know, it's, it's not universal necessarily, but often when one or two people are dominating the conversation, everybody else is feeling a little constrained in what they might contribute for some reason, right? So they're feeling a lack of safety uh, in contributing. So it's even asking the question, even prioritizing safety as a thing, because a lot of people, I mean, there's also, you know, a kind of macho thing, often in business, often with men, but like, no, we're just going to like spit out any idea here this you know and i and i think there's value in it and and I, the book radical candor comes to mind and i've loved the book but when i first heard about it it just sounded like it was going to be an excuse for these jerks that i worked with to you know yell more rather than less i'm just being i'm just having candor here i think you're terrible <laughs> <laughs> so i think adding adding in this sense of safety or valuing safety to me it, it seems to be somewhat of a new concept in, in, in a lot of the places we go to. Yeah, and I, I think that Amy Emmons' research is really fascinating too when you look at the best functioning teams and, and you could expand that to personal relationships, to organizations um, really do have a fairly equal amount of contribution um, because what what that tells me also, so you know, I lie um, very much on the introverted side of the spectrum. I'm in my head a lot. There's a ton of stuff going on in my head all the time, even when I sleep. And so I'm always processing and I'm, I'm sort of a hyper aware of what's going on around me for a lot of the time, even though I'm in my head, which is a weird thing to say. 
So there's a lot of data spinning in my head. And when it comes out, either as spoken word or written word, it's usually because I've reached a point where I have some type of synthesis that I'm ready to share. But I also, I'm not quick. I'm not the person in a room who's really fast with a line or a response or on a mic. You know, I'm much more, um, I'm sort of like a slow burn. And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, when, when you think about that, what would it take for me to be in a room with five other people around a table who are fast or loud or extroverted and feel like I have contributed what I need to contribute? And I think it's really interesting to think about, like, what would it take if one of the measures of really high function is equal time, what would it take for me in that room to feel like I could contribute equal time? I actually don't know the answer to that, but now I, I, I want to spend some time thinking about it. I'm the same. I need to, I need to think things through. And we, we both have pretty strong morning journaling practices. And part of why I do that is it, it helps me get clear. It helps me sift through. But I actually use the intentions, concerns, boundaries, and dreams myself, by myself, before I have a conversation with somebody else. I recommend that a lot with clients. Like, you know, you want to talk about X with so-and-so. Think about these four things for yourself about the topic and then share the intentions, concerns, boundaries, and dreams with them and think about it in advance. Give yourself some time with these four buckets. You know, like one thing we'll do with teams, especially now that we're everything is remote, you know, like all of our work is remote. Um, we've been using more digital tools for this, but we'll get just people, we'll give them two minutes or three minutes to journal on the, you know, like just to get the ideas out. And we'll use like a virtual post-it note board and just all the ideas will go up and, and even anonymous, you know, we just did it with a team of like 60 people doing in an international sales team. And so they got, you know, so they were able to get all the ideas out. And then what happens is people see that other people actually have the same as they do. They, they see themselves reflected in what's coming out and then they begin to feel a little more comfortable. As you were, you were talking about that, Jonathan, I realized like I identify and I don't identify with how you, what you're saying. Cause like when I first come into a group, I tend to be extremely quiet and it can go on for months. Sometimes it can go on for a very, very long time. And I've, and I remember it happening on a few occasions where people are like, where then all of a sudden something will click in. I don't know what it is exactly, but I'll suddenly feel comfortable. And then I'll start joking. I'll start making wry comment, you know, like my personality, like people actually have described it as that my personality has suddenly changed. And I'm like, no, actually I'm just, I think I just felt safe enough now to bring out a certain part of myself. And now I just have this hypothesis. I'd love to, to prove it, or I'd love to, I'm going to pay attention to it that I think going through this intentions, concerns, boundaries, and dreams exercise may speed that up for me, right? Because all of because now I'm hearing from other people, they feel safer because I know more about them. I have more data and I see myself reflected in some of that data. I'm like, oh, they share my concerns. They share my dreams. We share our intentions. So I've, I feel I identify with them a little bit more. And I've also been able to get some of my own, some of myself out you know, those nagging thoughts that I've been just sort of keeping to myself all that time. I've been quiet instead of keeping to them myself. Now they're out and now I can move on. Now I can kind of let myself go a little bit. Yeah. I love that. I mean, if it's, if it becomes a tool to, or a process that allows you to show up more quickly in an authentic way, I mean, that's a win for everybody. 
unless your authentic way is really offensive, but, but let's work on the assumption that it's not for now. Um, you know, we, we haven't really, the, the, the idea of um, the dream side of it also, I think is really interesting because a lot of times when you come into a conversation and you kind of have a sense, it may be an argument, it may be hard, there's a, there's a topic that, that one of the fears is very likely, and I'm curious because you, know, you guys have now experienced this both personally and with so many different groups, that one of the big fears is that one person's dream or the other person's dream is basically to win. And that doesn't mean win you over necessarily, it just means to dominate or maybe it's to leave or maybe it's to end the relationship or the project or whatever it may be. Whereas they may actually show up and like what they really want is like, can we just get this behind us so that we can like, we can, you know, like get back on a harmonized page and really do good work again. But if you never, if you're not explicit about that, I would imagine it wreaks havoc. So much. I'm so much agreeing with you right now. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the missing conversation that one or one of the the potential missing conversations that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You, you might discover that you're not in alignment or this should, we shouldn't move forward on this relationship or this project, but ultimately why dreams is so important. And what we see most of the time is that, I mean, we, we put dreams at the end because it brings you back together. We encourage people to like share your dreams for you and for the other person and for each other. And for, it's almost like a meta meditation. Like you, you start moving it out, like for the world that will be impacted by this decision for our family, et cetera. And when you hear somebody else's dreams, unless their dreams are really dark, uh, which I've never experienced personally, you want the other person's dreams for them. Like, oh, I want you to have that too. And then you want my dreams to happen for me. And then we release oxytocin together and then we're connected again. We've gotten through the concerns. We've gotten through the tough stuff. But oh, like, yeah, there there are these generative growth-filled energies that we can then like attach to to move forward together. It's it's really inspiring to hear each other's dreams. Or the dreams can even be for us, you know, like I dream that our relationship is deeper through this experience or that we come out a stronger team or better. I was thinking about when I think one of the first times we were really using this was um you know, we live in New York City where there are a lot of like cocktail parties that you can go to. And, you know, we have our introverted moments, we have our extroverted moments. And sometimes they coincide and and sometimes they don't. You know, sometimes sometimes they line up. And sometimes, you know, you're at an event and one person wants to go and the other person doesn't. And so that happened enough times that on the way to events, we would start talking like, well, I have a dream that will be, you know, that will be happier as a couple on the other side of this, which has resulted in a new boundary or a new agreement, which is you can go home without me. And that's totally fine. <laughs> like nobody needs to get impatient with anybody else. Uh, and tomorrow morning we will feel like now, now my dream is that tomorrow morning when we wake up, we're really good or we're in the cab going home and we feel really good, but maybe we're going home separately. Maybe that's fine. Yeah. I love that. Little simple things like that feel like, oh, well, that's kind of silly. But then you're like, you know what? but you add them up over the course of a day or a week or dozens of times and different different types of things. And it ends up, you know, leading up to the big fractures. Yeah. And very often it ends up 
all coming out in one explosive laundry list of every wrong that has ever been done and every violation that's ever been made. And whereas if you sort of, um, and maybe that's sort of something to touch down on here is the notion that where on the one hand you're saying, set the stage, like, you know, like create the time, like say, okay, make sure that it's an appropriate time for, you know, all parties involved to actually have this conversation and that you're ready and you're prepared. But at the same time, have it, you know, don't just, because it's not the right time, you know, you know, if somebody's like, well, it's never going to be the right time where they keep blowing it off, it then it just piles into a, like a big giant explosive mess. (laughs) Well, that's one of the reasons why I avoided tough conversations for most of my life, because in my family of origin, tough conversations or important topics meant it was going to evolve into a fight that you then had to be prepared to relitigate every past wrong. So like everything was on the table. And what we're asking people to do in this structured conversation is we're going to talk about this topic. You get really clear when you set the stage. I want to talk about this thing together. And it's something that you can keep coming back to, right? It's like a, med- it's like a conversation of meditation. Like, oh, I'm, we're talking about this. That's an important topic. Like, let's have that conversation another time. We agree. We're going to talk about this thing here. And that is so calming. It's like, oh, I don't have to somehow defend my entire existence in the space of this one conversation. I know what we're talking about here. Yeah. And and talking about entering a conversation, prioritizing the relationship over, or at least equal to the topic under discussion, you know, like saying that we want to, that I want to come out of this with a good relationship, whether or not, maybe we even decide that, oh, this thing that we were getting to do together, we really shouldn't do it because, you know, we're, our goals are relatively different or our attitudes are relatively different, but that preserves the relate that can preserve the relationship potentially as mm-hmm. well. But we all, one of the things we think about is, um, Gottman's four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse. Right. And I think what you're describing, Jonathan, is like when I'm pent up, you know, like I'm much more likely to, if I, if I haven't expressed a boundary, it's much more likely to come out expressed as criticism of the other person. Right. You know, like if I haven't expressed a boundary of say, I, you know, I want to go to bed at a certain time, you know, and, or I, I, I don't know, like, and somebody else kind of violates that or calls me late all the time and say, you always call me late. You're always the kind of person who, you know, rather than expressing the boundary up front, then it's much more likely to be expressed in a way that's that, that the other person can kind of hear. Yeah. Right. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. 
limited. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I have to share a huge parenting win with you, Jonathan. <laughs> I think you'll appreciate this. Um, over the summer, our now 13-year-old said out of nowhere at the dinner table, I'm really glad I'm being raised learning to care about other people's feelings. Like, we've been using this style of communication with him for six or seven years since he was little. And because, you know, I feel like I've been reparenting myself as much as I am like parenting him to have tough conversations in a way where there's empathy and respect and clarity. Like, yeah, dude, I'm really glad you're being raised to learn to care about other people's feelings too. Yeah. And he's just gotten into high school. So we'll see what the next couple of yeah, years. We'll see if that still holds right. next year. Talk to us next year. We'll see how Capture we feel that this. moment in time. Just, uh, turn on your voice memo. Can you just say that one more time? I I need I need to be able to re remember this moment. Yeah. yeah. Um we've been talking a lot about the container and we've talked a little bit about sort of like you know what you guys consider the rules of engagement. We talked about arguing good faith, brought up Gottman's Four Horsemen. We actually had Julia and John on uh the podcast in the past which was a fantastic conversation. Amazing. I I cool. love them both. They it's and it's funny to see I think I recall I commented during our conversation on the podcast. And, and for those who don't know, Julie and John Gottman run this thing colloquially called The Love Lab, but they've been researching love and partnership and conversation for 40 years. And I think it was about uh, 45 minutes into the conversation. And I kind of said, I, I noticed, I was like, you know, you and they've been together, I think, 40 or 50 years, something like that. And I was like, you guys are doing a really interesting dance, even in the studio. You know, because they were really, it was like they were handing the baton between each other. 
in the conversation. And you could, if you were in the studio, you could sense, like I could watch them and see the physical tells of when somebody who was not speaking had something they wanted to contribute, but they were waiting. And it was interesting to sort of like see how they were embodying the ground rules that you're talking about, their own observations about um, healthy relationships. You know, the there are a whole bunch of other very specific rules of engagement that you guys write about. But one of the things I actually kind of wanted to explore on more of a meta level is the, um, maybe two things, is the idea of awareness and self-care, because in a way I think they kind of go together. Because I, I, you know, we're we're talking about, you know, things that you do, um, sort of in the moment, you know, or leading up to the moment. Here's how we're going to set the stage for the moment, and here's what here's here's how we interact in the moment. But you know, before you ever get to the moment, what you bring, the state of being, the state of mind that you bring into that moment, I have to imagine, is equally important to constructive outcomes. Yeah, a hundred percent. My, my mind is going in like three different directions as you're, as you're talking about this. One is one of the gifts actually of spending all of my time at home for the last six months. Because I used to travel a lot and I used to work on a bunch of multiple projects all at the same time. And I still do that, but you know, that I would be changing context a lot. And I was actually under a lot more stress. My diet wasn't as, as good. And when we talk about sort of emotional presence or the presence that I bring to something, I know, you know, you're a meditator and, you know, the Buddhists will say that it goes back to bodily sensation, right? In many ways, like your emotion is is an expression of your interpretation of a bodily sensation. And I'm actually reading a, a book by a neuroscientist now, and he basically says neuroscientists know the same thing, you know, like that we have a bodily sensation and that bodily... And one of the things I noticed with self-care, this kind of goes back to our rules of engagement, where we talk about no alcohol, let's be fed is that let's pay attention to the bodily sensations we're having, like how we feel coming into something and it really changes. And I think, I don't actually, I, I have no idea whether, you inter whether you've noticed this, Alex, but I actually feel like a much more stable person over the last six months than I was before. Like I, cause I get, you know, I, I identify with some of the things you were saying earlier, Jonathan, about, you know, like I just get in a bad mood or I'm short. And I've just noticed that happening less and less because I've been much more in control and self-aware because I have this daily meditation and journaling practice and I know how I feel and I can change, you know, I, I have kind of strict routines. I wake up, I drink two bottles of water because I know that if I'm not taking care of myself, then I'm just not going to bring my best self to the situation. Yeah. My own, I mean, I have the same self-care rules that you do, but we're also really aware that how we take care of our physical bodies is going to impact the quality of our conversations. And so we have a lot of compassion for each other. Like if one of us isn't feeling great, we're like, you know what? I understand. Like you're nervous or tired or anxious. Maybe like, let's talk another time. And I've actually, you know, I've done a lot of work around rewiring my own nervous system you know, early childhood traumas, I would dissociate during certain really tough conversations because they reminded me of childhood. And I think that's really common. It's really common. And just, I just, I love that the idea that we hold trauma in our bodies is becoming more well-known so that we can have more compassion for ourselves and each other in these tough conversations. Like, oh, you might, like, again, the word triggered, like, 
you might actually be triggered in your nervous system right now. And that is not the time to have a tough conversation where important decisions need to be made. It's like raising children, right? Like you don't try to teach them anything when they're having a meltdown. You help them get calm, they take a nap, and maybe then you talk about what happened. Like nothing good happens in the intellectual brain when we're emotionally lit up like that. But we do take a a much deeper, greater responsibility for how we're showing up physically to these conversations. So I think actually like having these intentional conversations over the last several years has helped me in some ways rewire my nervous system over time. It's become like a new rewiring. So it's almost like you start to realize that the inevitable outcome of these things that you might have experienced as doom and gloom before is like, oh, I can go to that place, but it, with a different context and it's, it's actually going to be okay, which may, it's, it's almost like a form of exposure therapy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you live through something and you're like, oh. I can live through that again. That's a, yeah. that, that's yeah. okay. Exactly. And, and I guess okay. when you approach it with sort of like, okay, so with a set of, of rules or, or a framework with an actual approach where you, you understand that the, the, the core of the dynamic is replicable, it probably gives you a certain amount of sort of psychological bedrock to go back to that place more readily as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you've both actually said the same thing in different ways. You were just mentioning it, Alex, and when talking about that you help the child calm down, and then you have the conversation later. Yeah, you have the conversation later, right? You know, because I think the tendency is like, oh, the child's calm now, so now I don't have to deal with now. And now I'm not going to deal with anything. And so there is a a part of self care and awareness, which is that in that enlightened piece, which is, you know, it's like going to the gym. I know if I exercise three times a week that my life is better, even though I don't necessarily want to go and exercise three times a week. Right. Like, and just like the, and the difficult conversations, I know that my, and this is something, I mean, from, we got together in, let's say I was in middle age, you weren't quite there yet, but you know, we were, we were late. We had all, we each had significant relationships. And one of our sort of early rules was we can talk about anything. And there were several conversations, especially early on, as we were getting to know each other in the first couple of years of our relationship, where I was like, oh, this might end it. You know, like this little thing that I'm feeling, this thing that I'm having. And my tendency had been in other relationships to actually just bury that thing. Well, it's not up right now, so I'm just not going to worry about it. You know, it's just sort of like this nagging little thing, so it's not really worth bringing out. And I think what what I learned, and maybe some of hopefully we've captured in this book, is no, it's actually now is the time, like it, I am feeling calm and there is this thing that was nagging me before. And I know enough about myself to know that when I'm low blood sugar and I've had a glass of wine and I'm you know, tired later on, that this is going to come out and it's going to come out in some kind of nasty way or some, some less than kind way, some way that I don't intend. So now is the time to bring this up and now is the time to have that conversation. And I think a lot of our intent with this book, one of the reasons because clearly we're creating this like structured, linear, four-step process for a very non-linear, very organic thing, which is, you know, emotional resonance with another human being, essentially. And so 
one of the reasons we have this is because when you have steps, it's just more likely to happen. If I going back to the gym metaphor, if I have a trainer and a spreadsheet who's told me that you know one day a week I'm going to be doing upper body and it's going to consist of these exercises and this many reps, I'm far more likely to make it to the gym when I look at that spreadsheet than I am because I have this sort of linear process rather than just saying, "Oh, you should move more," you know, "you should exercise some." Yeah, which kind of brings me around to. Uh... The question that I wanted to ask, and then we'll 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 kind of come full circle, which is, and and I think Bob, you you sort of planted that seed, which is you wrote this book when you shared originally, like you both had an intention when you decided to sit down and write this. It would be fun, work on a project together, do something cool. It's good for marketing. It'll help people. But that that last thing, you know, when you create effectively a toolbox for a conversation. And you offer it out to the world at this moment in time. Do you both have a bigger intention around what you would love it to enable? I'm going to point to a few real world examples from friends and clients and readers that, I mean, this might be the first time in my, this is like a 20, 20 year in my career here. Like This might be the first time where people keep saying, oh my gosh, this is really helping me with some really tough stuff. You know, people are having conversations that they otherwise would never have had or would lead to more problems in marriages and on business teams and in families. And just hearing their feedback that, um, oh my gosh, I, I actually have like a great adult relationship now because now I know how to have an adult conversation about tough topics, or I wrote a letter to my father-in-law, and now we're finally communicating about something that keeps devolving into fights whenever our family gets together. It was not planned that the book would come out at this perfect moment. <laughs> that was kind of the divine luck that you mentioned before, like that it really was kind of a, a lucky timing in some ways that it's so useful right now. Yeah. I mean, I'll say I really, I've, I've had, let's just say I've had sort of a, a rough time with personal relationships through a lot of my life, you know, intimate relationships. Alex is my fourth wife, you know, like my, and, <laughs> and the best. I'm just very happy with the relationship I have. And, you know, people talk about marrying the right person being for your personal happiness and success and having the right, and I would just say not just marrying the right person, but having the right relationship at home is one of the most impactful things you can do for personal happiness. So really echoing what you're saying, Alex. And then there's another component to this because our tool can be used in personal relationships in, you know, like private relationships or, and it can also be used in professional and we use it in a professional context quite a bit. My background and my interest has always been in you know, sort of sustainability and social justice and creating a more equitable, creating a more sustainable world. And so I've worked on climate. I've worked, uh, I have an MBA that's focused on sustainable systems. And I've always been a little perplexed because they just, these problems just seem so big and so vast. And I know they're going to be here after I'm gone, you know, like we're not going to solve them in our generation, but I want to, but I would like to solve, you know, at least contribute to solving them in our generation. And I feel like one thing that I'm seeing or one contribution that I can make is helping leadership teams of organizations make better decisions. And part of the making better decisions is hearing from everybody, you know, like welcoming everybody and welcoming, you know, you know, a diversity of voices. 
And one of the things that's often missed in the diversity conversation is that when people come from different backgrounds, we see the world in different ways. And that almost by definition will introduce more conflict potential or the more or more potential for conflict, right? Because homogenous teams just like, oh yeah, I get you, you get me, and we're just going to move forward. And so when you look at sort of the the team performance metrics, homogenous teams can perform pretty well, but diverse teams tend to be more creative and have more divergent thinking about them. And so part of my personal mission is to help teams develop what I would call sort of a healthy emotional landscape so they can welcome more voices and so they can have they can make better sort of shared decisions rather than this, you know, command and control, top down, smartest, highest paid guy in the room makes all the decisions and everybody else runs scared and does what they say. Because I think that model of organizational development, organizational design has kind of run its course. And I think we really need a new model if we're going to tackle problems like climate change, like poverty, like racial equity in this world. Mm, love it. So good time for us to come full circle here. So hanging out in this container of, of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life for each of you, what comes up? I'm with people that I love, um, getting to make stuff that's fun <laughs> and feeling like I'm contributing and helping more people than just myself and my immediate circle. Yeah, I don't know that I can add any. It's it's relationships and being it's spending time with people who fill me up rather than deplete me. And it's feeling like my work is good. Like I'm on the edge both like I'm scaring myself a little bit, you know, like trying new stuff, making things a little bit harder, stepping into situations where I feel a little unsure. I really love that because it forces me to grow. And then feeling like that work is there for a good reason. Like it is contributing to this project of creating a more equitable and and, and sustainable world. Mm. Thank you both. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan. It's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E. Type.com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.